Howdy. Logan and I are slowly but surely working our way through my trip to Europe last summer. Today we discuss my time in France, specifically Paris and Normandy. Enjoy the show. Kansas Day. I'm the bad Kansan who never knows. I know it like I'm like <laughs> I I know it's in January and then always forget about it until someone brings it up. Right? I think I did see it on Facebook today, but I didn't know if they were referring to yesterday. So it is January 29th. That sounds about right. Yes. Do you know what year? Oh my gosh, hang on. It would be ah oh, shoot. I know <laughs> Okay, this is a complete shot in the dark because I don't know it all. Uh 1874. Uh, no. <laughs> Dang it. It's earlier, because it's pre-Civil War. Oh, that's right, because uh, bloody Kansas. I guess I didn't know what date it actually became a state, so 1854. Uh, no, 1861. Okay, why don't I know this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. Oh, hey, so your high school graduation would have been the, uh, is it sesquicentennial? Is that the 150? Uh... I don't know what I don't know if it's sesquicentennial, but yeah, it would have been 150. Anyway, hi, yeah, happy birthday, Kansas! <laughs> <laughs> Today we're going to talk about. Oh, I know I was going to ask uh, here first before we get into Europe again. Is have you been making progress on a potential top ten movies of the year, or are you kind of falling behind with school and everything? No, I have been making progress. Oh, good, some pretty substantial progress, actually. I don't want to go too into it. No, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. We can save some of it. That's but... going to be its own episode. Yeah. But I do have I do have a couple things. Uh, I don't I don't know how much time you want to spend on it when we get to the movies and TV section. But okay, you have some things to say. <laughs> I I got some stuff. Yeah. Okay, and and I have a little bit of a oh hard out is a strong word because I don't have to go, but I'm going to try to catch the new Pedro Almodovar movie parallel mothers with it being a potential candidate so i'm trying to make it to that so i would need to leave here uh, in a couple hours to make that okay but yeah shouldn't should be a problem i always say his name wrong too like i always forget if it's almodovar or aldomovar i switch the d and the m in his name every time i always say aldomovar and have to look it up and be like oh no almodovar which uh again if you're not if you're not familiar he's done tons of uh movies he's always kind of getting the films that are up for best foreign language film from spain so yeah. volver volver talk to her bad education all about my mother just uh really really good filmmaker who's not super well known in the states but uh honestly it's very similar to like uh, asgard farhadi from iran where yeah, it's making great stuff that just most uh, yeah, people good in the stuff West, and, yeah. and always well represented at the Oscars. Right, like, right. Always gets a decent, you know, decent amount of uh, nominations for their work, but because it's not in English, it doesn't, you know, right. doesn't usually get a lot of mainstream um, success here in the states. And smaller movies that don't have the breakthrough power of like uh, Parasite did for Bong Joon Ho or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Didn't uh, Didn't Farhadi have a movie that came out this year or came out last year? Yeah, called uh, A Hero. But it, and that's I feel like it's one that is just not going to be available in time. It might be something that I try to just put on my list for next year or yeah. uh, or watch before next year. And I'm trying to keep an eye on that too and make sure that I'm keeping an eye on what stuff last year was. You know in the running or in you know getting buzz that just wasn't available 
and uh, one of there's like one called like Quovati Saida or something like that that I'm gonna try to catch. That was a 2020 film, but it just wasn't available for me to watch then. So if I watch it now, I figure it could still be eligible too. It looks like a hero is on Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. And I haven't. I mean, I try to check like you know once a month or something. So. Um, that would be you know great. What? I might actually watch this <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, near future because yeah. it, it's included with Prime too. You don't have to pay money oh, to man. rent it. So yeah, so uh, Rain Check, we're gonna just go ahead and not record this episode uh, today, and we're gonna <laughs> we're, we're both gonna immediately go watch the, the new Asgard uh, Farhadi movie. Yeah. movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, let's uh let's talk about Europe some more. Again, I'm trying to. I had this month-long trip to Europe in summer of 2021, and we've been trying to talk about it in detail, which the best way to do that is in pieces. And so today, I believe we're getting into my week in France. So I, I did. we already did talk about, I spent a day-ish in Lyon before going to Switzerland, talked all about Switzerland last time, and then from Switzerland, I did go back to France. So uh, you want to pull up the pictures oh yeah you know, i shared that that photo album with you it is interesting to me and like the further removed we get from your trip the more impressed i am that you were able to make this trip happen oh in the midst of covid because, yeah yeah at time i mean it's like are you sure that you're not a time traveler that like <laughs> went back and got the perfect dates to get it where there would be no restrictions? Because it was literally like at the very end, the very bottom of the wave from the beginning. Right. Like before Delta. Right. And it was like just perfectly like right after the winter wave. And then everyone, you know, was getting vaccinated. So it was like, oh, okay, yeah, travel's open it up. Everyone's super optimistic. And then you went to Europe and like as soon as you came back, it was like, oh, Delta wave hit. And now it's like Omicron. And it's now that all the restrictions are back. Yeah. So it was like the perfect, <laughs> the perfect timing on your part, completely inadvertently. Yeah, just dumb luck. So basically it was because... I was right on the vaccination and the lull and all of that and just lucked out that I had planned it as that was waning and just had no idea that Delta was coming. And actually, as we get into France here, that is where I had the biggest issues with dealing with COVID protocols. And I think I did mention briefly that France, basically like the day before I arrived in France from Switzerland, reinstituted or put in place a lot more restrictions. And all of a sudden it went from fairly open to, oh, no, you have to have a EU digital vaccine QR code to get into museums in France. And I'm just like, right. the day be- that goes in place the day before I get back to France. And I'm like, ugh, which I had the vaccine card, but like... But it wasn't the right one? That's not the, EU, the EU thing. One? So... If you if if you would have taken this trip like a week later, you would have not have been able to do any of the stuff like in Lyon, like with the uh, the museum, the movie museum, and something. Yeah, like that, right? yeah, potentially. And of course, also too, it's like no one knows anything. And like when I went to Paris, and you know, you hear see all these lockdowns in place. I literally went to like the tourist information bureau in Paris and was just like, "What can I do? Like, what is still okay and what's not okay?" And the lady straight up said. We don't know. I mean, she she did give me some advice, but she's saying like this is new. We're it's changing every day for us too. I'm not sure what to tell you. Here's what the Ministry of Health or whoever it was, whatever government agency sent them today. So she's literally just pulling up a printed copy of the email they got 
and it's new to her too. Yeah. And that's where she kind of said, okay, these places are requiring the QR code proof of vaccination. And then these places are okay with a paper American vaccine card. So that's why I was able to go to, say, Versailles that was allowing the paper card, but not the Louvre that wanted the digital one. But what's interesting, too, and kind of jumping a little bit ahead here when I went to Normandy and I ran into uh, American, a mother and daughter from America that were traveling together. They said they did get into the Louvre with their paper card. I didn't even think to try because you had to also book. You also had to book ahead of time. It almost just depends on, honestly, which person was working the checkpoint and if they were confused enough by your yeah. american card to just wave you in like it's no one knows anything they don't know what they're supposed to do like there wasn't real strict this is 100 percent right. okay this it's everyone's just kind of treading water at this point all around the world so and that is why i don't know i, I feel like you can kind of come down on either side of this but that's why i think a lot of that stuff is just kind of dumb then it almost seems like it's restriction for the sake of restriction but it's not implemented in a way that is effective at all and it's like, you know, there's all this gray area and places for people to fall through the cracks. And it's, I don't know. No, right. But I mean, I mean, that's, I know that's. To me, it just seems a little bit ridiculous, especially when there's, you know, vaccines are so widely available, at least in the United States. Like, okay, get one if you want. Especially because and now we have Omicron that people who are vaccinated and boosted are getting and spreading. So now it's like, so what? Is the vaccine card even mean now? Right, and that, and that wasn't the the state of things back in June when I, I was. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And that's 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 fair, I guess. But or July, I guess. Not to not to make this a episode on the efficacy of. Well, no, and honestly, too, like we don't we don't know what we don't know. And you we even look at like when yeah. schools, you know, in in spring twenty twenty when schools closed down, and and then we come back in the fall and we're, we're masked. But then at the same time, we start to lift those restrictions as Delta skyrocketing, and if anything, it's like. That's all backwards. We actually would have been better masking and going to school spring of 2020 and then probably should have been, if anything, gone remote around Christmas 2021. So it's just, I don't know, it's it's easy to, I guess, you know, Monday morning quarterback all this stuff. And yeah, it's exhausting and we all want it to be over. And what I did, I was just listening to the stats. So they basically did say this, this is all Bill Maher and he's very liberal, but very let's just move on with our lives and all this crap. Like, yeah. he's, ba- he's basically like, get vaccinated. If you didn't get vaccinated, well, you're more likely to die, but that's your problem. Exactly. Yes. Mine is taking care of at-risk people. Yeah. I think that's a great, that's a good place, at least to start from, you know, policy-wise. Well, because his whole thing was like, at what point are we responsible for caring more about your health than you are? Like... 1,000%. That is the thing that makes me so frustrated. It's like, you can't expect me to care more about someone else's health than they care about their own health. Right. Like, if I got vaccinated, and that means that I'm going to be okay, why am I still wearing a mask? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess, and also, I guess, uh, that's where I always say I'm about 25% libertarian. And that's the stuff it comes down to. So it's like, when it gets like seatbelt laws and helmet laws, things that don't actually affect anybody else other than the person where, I'm not saying I'm super anti helmet laws or seatbelt laws, but at the same time, those are Mm -hmm. what they call it paternalistic kind of laws where we're protecting you from yourself and your own bad decisions when those bad decisions don't really have any effect on anybody else you're like say gambling you know things like that where you know why is gambling illegal it should be my prerogative and so that's where i was you know i would say about 25 percent libertarian same thing here so basically 99 percent of the people dying of COVID right now are unvaccinated so if you hear that and still don't get vaccinated you're dumb. <laughs> and even the people who are 
vaccinated and die are like either uh, super yes, old yes. and or they are like having a bunch of other health issues and yes right that that one percent is the is extremely at risk right right yeah right the number of fatalities of like 20 year old vaccinated people is close to zero if not zero basically non-existent right yeah. right it's so vanishingly small right anyway yeah so paris was scared of covid a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and just little things too like i guess i i show up to you know as i was in paris in 2010 and go back here in July of 2021 and kind of want to do some different things. So I wasn't actually, I mean, I was going to go to the Louvre again just because it is the Louvre and it's massive and you can't see everything in one trip anyway. And it had been a decade. But I also didn't stress it when I didn't have the digital card and didn't realize I could have maybe just got in with my paper card. Uh, but then I tried to go to the, oh, what do they call it? The, the catacombs. You'll see the pictures of all the skulls underneath Paris and stuff. Oh, yeah. And I don't yeah, even yeah. know the story. So there I just kind of showed up. And they're like, uh, you have to book an appointment. Like, because so that what they were trying to do to control the numbers is you basically had to get a ticket online ahead of time to go to the museums in Paris. Oh, and you, so you would have like a certain time slot. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So I didn't know that. So I didn't get to go to the catacombs again. And again, I'm sure I'll try to go back to Paris again at some point. So I did go down to Versailles. I booked that ahead of time. That was actually another stressful thing with, again, COVID slash, again, France isn't great on, on the English and the logistics of just trying to switch subways. Oh, that's right. I have my subway route planned to get to Versailles and all of a sudden you get to a point where like, oh, well, that line's closed today for repairs. And I'm like, uh, I, oh. I don't have an alternate route. I already paid like 50 bucks online to do like the whole Versailles, you know, package of the gardens and the palace and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm like pot committed to get there. Oh, and same thing. I had a, I, because of the time slot, I had a time slot book. So it wasn't just like show up to Versailles at some point. It's like, no, I have like a 9 a.m. appointment and I'm trying to get there. And all of a sudden the trains aren't connected the right way. So I'm, Google's trying to, you know, reroute me the best they can. But I'm like, I don't even know where this station is and all these kinds of things. I ended up yeah. making it part of the way. I'm like, do I straight up start running? Because you're like, okay, it's like six <laughs> six miles. I just gotta start running to the Versailles. Oh yeah, I guess that's that's a good point. I'm not I'm not familiar with the geography oh. here. How how far is this trip? Is this like thirty miles that you're traveling oh, by train, it's, or it's, is it? It's well over. It's like thirty forty five minutes connecting subways, but in Paris, that's still maybe less than twenty miles. So I forget exactly, but Versailles is basically a suburb on the outskirts of western paris so if you just kind of go okay so like it's it's not crazy far but it's like you don't want to have to walk it no you don't have to like book it and run to get there yeah yeah it was it it was (laughs) okay yeah i think i'd already take a subway a good chunk of the way there and it really was going to be like a six mile run to finish it up kind of thing through and that's yeah anyway but i did not do that i basically got to the point where like i was trying to get a bus i'm like I was just so worried that I was going to miss my time and be out the money or whatever that I straight up pulled out my phone and got an Uber, like a $30 Uber ride just to finish up and get there in time. Yeah. Which again, I hated shopping. It was like 30 bucks for an Uber, you know, like a 20 minute Uber ride or whatever it was. But you made it. But I made it. So yeah, it was, and and, and, and of course you're still not a hundred percent sure all the vaccine cards and all that stuff are going to work, but yes, everything worked. I got it. I got in the past. I had like an audio guide. I had, you know, they've always kind of had the audio guides you could purchase. Now there's actually a lot of stuff just to free apps 
that just kind of operate within the museum. So you just you literally just download a quick Versailles app and then all the same things that would have been on the paid audio guide are just right there for free on an app with the museum. And it's it's huge. It's cool. It's got a lot of history stuff. And, you know, they kind of talk because it was, it was uh, I think it was Louis the Fourteenth was the one that built it there. And then, but it, you know, you get into, you know, Napoleon was living there and all those kinds of things. So then the kind of the different rooms are decorated with different periods throughout French history. And it's all very cool, very elaborate. And of course, it's just a museum now. But the gardens, I thought, were even more of a, of a shock. I just, just for the sheer size of it, if you pull up Oh, what's this? Uh, what's this photo of you in a in a plywood box? <laughs> so yes, that was uh, that's how you stay for thirty bucks a night in Paris. Nice. I mean, it's li- it's literally a cardboard box. A plywood, a cardboard, a plywood box. It's a plywood box. Basically, I, I it's a it's a hostel, and I paid for a private room. But what essentially this private room in Paris was, and again, this is how you stay in Paris for thirty bucks a night. So one, I'm on the extreme south end of Paris. I'm really not even in Paris anymore. I'm so far south with a, you know a few metro stops that you had to go that way. Okay, and then basically imagine a bunk bed, but then it's plywooded apart to make it two separate rooms. So I walk in a door and have about four feet and then the bed is then down below but then the top part where the top of the bunk bed would be is walled off because someone else has a different go door that goes to the top half of the bunk bed so basically it's right. a bunk bed that's literally two separate quote rooms right so yeah it was essentially it's essentially a plywood box but it was 30 bucks a night in paris that doesn't even look like a mattress it looks like someone put like a jujitsu mat <laughs> on like the bottom of a piece of plywood and then put a pillow on it and said this is a be- this is a bed yeah it's uh it was actually comfortable <laughs> it was comfortable enough though hey for 30 bucks yeah if you're gonna beat say, it yeah 30 bucks a night in paris <laughs> that's uh that's kind of unheard of so yeah how how do you find a place like that was that did you find that online yeah there are apps now there's like hostile world is like an app Okay. And, and and stuff like that might show up on Kayak as well. So, yeah, I, I would kind of rotate through like two or three different apps. I, well, actually, I think I used Kayak, Hotels Tonight, and Hostel World as like were like the three apps I would always check. Because, uh, again, this trip was not entirely improvised. It was a little more, but at the same time, because of COVID and all those other things, I kind of wanted that flexibility and think, in case things got locked down. I didn't want to book the whole thing. Yeah. And then I right. have to pull an Audible. So I was basically, oh, what's the... Is it Wiley e. Coyote? What are the the cartoon where I'm basically laying the railroad tracks down in front of me as the train's moving? Oh, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was always trying to book, just have the next few days always planned. And as I always kind of got within the next couple of days, it's like, okay, I got one more night in Paris, time to plan the next night, you know, and just kind of keep doing that. But I also, again, in 2010, we were straight up arriving in towns without a place to stay. I was always trying to book the place I was staying before... I got to the next spot. Did that ever come back to bite you in 2010? Did you ever end up in a place where you just couldn't find a spot? Or were you like, well, we'll sleep on a park bench if it comes down to it type situation? No, the biggest tassel we had, and it ended up working out, but it was the, it was the most stressful was when we, we were in Florence. And we're initially kind of thinking we would go from Florence to Venice. But I had also mentioned uh, Rick Steves would talk about Cinque Terre being one of the like top places in Europe you need to see. And we kind of changed at the last minute to then go to Cinque Terre instead of Venice. 
And that was fine. So we got there. We booked a room for the night. We were debating, do we stay a second night in Cinque Terre? And we're like, no, let's not commit to that. And then by the time we thought, oh, it's getting kind of late. It would be nice if we had a second night here. But I guess we don't. I guess we need to move on. Where are we going next? We don't really know. And we end up, okay, let's go. Let's get on a train north to Milan. So we're basically in Milan at like 11 p.m., not planning on staying in Milan, trying to figure out how to get to Paris. But like the train station is closing there's like nothing, oh, there's like man. nothing. So basically it's like, are we just going to sleep in the train station in Milan if we can't get out of here? And so we're trying to figure it out. We're mad we didn't stay in Cinque Terre another night to just avoid the stress. We could have left in the morning instead, all those kinds of things. And we ended up, basically the person, as they were closing closing up, was like, okay, I don't have anything for you that I can sell you, but there's a train to Paris coming in. And if you give the conductor 100 euros cash you can you should be able to get on i'm like is this a bribe like what is going on yeah hell yeah, yeah. that's awesome yeah so like <laughs> we, we had to like either seriously like give him our passports and 100 euros cash and just trust that the person told us correctly that the conductor would hook us up and then yeah it was a, it was a sleeper car so 100 euro nice. overnight trip to paris Obviously hard to sleep. I, mean, I, I probably didn't sleep. But yeah, so that's how we got to Paris in, in 2010. Oh, yeah, because yeah. you can't sleep on transportation. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> even Wait, even in a sleeper car, like in an actual bed, you can't sleep? I think I probably actually did get a little bit of sleep there. Because oh, okay. that, yeah, that, that, that is actually a bed, and I actually don't mind white noise as much. But yeah. Yeah, so that was, to your point, that was kind of the, uh, uh, definitely a hang up there where the lack of planning kind of bit us. And actually one I had here too, so... We'll get to the rest of Versailles here in a second. Uh, the first place I booked, so after Paris, my plan was to go to Caen, which is again the kind of the, one of the center cities in Normandy. And I had booked, right. I had booked a place on Airbnb that then was saying, "Oh, and you have to give us a deposit, and here's the link to pay for the deposit that was outside of Airbnb." And I'm just like thinking, like huge red flags going off for me that they're trying to direct me away from Airbnb for a deposit that wasn't mentioned initially. You know what I'm saying? I'd already paid. Yeah. I'd already paid online through Airbnb and now they're saying, oh, hey, right. and now you have to give us a deposit and here's an external link to do that. Yeah. And uh, I was like trying to say, uh, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. And they like weren't responding. And you know, the, the, the reviews were all good though. Like they had positive reviews. So it probably would have worked out and been fine because again, they had enough positive reviews. I wasn't like, but I also just did not feel comfortable doing it. So now I'm trying to get a hold of Airbnb. But then you get the whole, well, I have my European SIM card in and my Airbnb account is tied to my US phone number that's not active because that oh, SIM card yeah. is in my pocket. And then so then we do get a hold of Airbnb. It's not necess- it's not a native English speaker because you're calling it in a different country. So Right. And they, they were going back and forth. And then it's like three different times. The person who was... I, Airbnb did a good job in the sense that everyone I talked to was very helpful, but also just about to check out of their shift. And so <laughs> I ended up with like three different people and basically having to start over. And I and I keep having to like, they would kick my ticket, you know, they call it like a, a service ticket or whatever. They would they would pass my ticket on to the next person. But like, I needed to know because I'm getting ready to go to con. I need to know where I'm staying. And like, this hasn't been taken care of yet. And I don't want to book a new place until I've canceled the old place. Anyway, so finally, I mean, it did probably take a couple hours, which seemed like an eternity when I, again, I just wanted it taken care of to finally Airbnb did give me a refund. They did manually cancel it. So I wouldn't be, cause you can always cancel, but you, you lose the, uh, 
you lose the down payment or the whatever. You'll always lose part of it if you cancel because also I was was within 24 hours and they gave me a full refund. They took care of the cancellation on their end and then I was free to then book something else uh, in con. So yeah, you do end up with little things, things like that being uh, an issue, uh, an issue for sure. So I kind of, yeah, so I guess the day before I went to Versailles, I kind of just was walk around Paris. I did get the little bus, the tour bus pass, like the uh, hop on, hop off tour kind of things where you just kind of pay for like 24 hours to be able to use this bus that goes a certain route and has like audio stuff going okay. on. So yeah. something I didn't do last time. So that, that was kind of neat to use both as a bus, but then also it goes by major, major points and it's not cheap, cheap, but it's also not horrible. I think it was actually, I think it is even like they were in a special where it was even like 48 hours. So I think for like 50, 60 bucks, I got 48 hours usage on this bus, which was pretty good just because of, you know, the tour aspect of it. The only downside is its hours are fairly limited. It only ran from like, say, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. So you couldn't use it all the time. If you do see too, like, I think a lot of this was COVID related. If you see there's the pictures of the, of the, military police looking guys out in front of the louvre and uh oh yeah i see yeah so you see there's like there's like seriously like seven or eight guys in military with the assault rifles i think that was all just covid enforcement honestly really there as far as like protests and stuff like that paris oh france doesn't like tolerate a lot of uh i mean you can protest, but like if you're causing a problem, we're going to stop you from causing a problem. Like I mentioned too, right. in Lyon, running into tear gas and stuff like that. I think, and there, I was hearing you know on the news, I didn't actually run into any of them, but there was talks of lots of demonstrations and stuff. And so I think France is real quick about like, yeah, 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 uh, just uh, move along, move along, move along. We don't have time for that here. Huh. So yeah, definitely saw lots of lots of police there. Yeah. So yeah, all, all these Eiffel Tower pictures are just kind of hanging out in Paris that first night, and then it was the night, and then. Uh, Notre Dame. I did get to go into Notre Dame in 2010, but it's had obviously the fire from a few years ago, so it's still undergoing yeah. massive uh, reconstruction. Uh, so they kind of just had set up almost like a museum outside of it, which just kind of displays about the history of the cathedral. But yeah, you you can't go in. It's it's a giant construction site and will continue to be for a long time. Yeah, the weird rash on my leg. I never actually figured it out. I had it for about five days on both legs. It didn't really itch or burn much technically it did a little bit hmm. um my thought was poison ivy as well i've never gotten poison ivy, poison ivy before I, I texted tyler and he's like uh yeah we don't have poison ivy in switzerland because that's where I've, i assumed i got it hiking in switzerland hmm. and then it just i just showed yeah. up when i got to paris you've never gotten poison ivy before no well i don't think i'm allergic really yeah so uh i didn't that's know that weird. i didn't know that was a thing either and again i haven't tested the theory but there was like one time when i was like in college and yeah Basically, long and short of it, we were all out, you know, in the woods somewhere as you are. And the person who had been on the ground to my right and my left, the next day, they both had poison ivy and I did not. Now, that's anecdotal or circumstantial evidence, but that combined with the fact I've never had it. And I didn't know that was a thing, though. I thought everyone had a reaction to it. I didn't know some people were not allergic to it. So, again, I haven't stripped. Oh, yeah, I thought that was, yeah, I thought that. Well, yeah, next next time you're out running on a country road and you see some poison ivy girl on the side of the road, just go up and just like, rub some on your leg. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to see the theory. if anything happens. Eat a little bit of it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it def- so it definitely looks similar to a poison ivy kind of rash. 
But also, like, it didn't make sense that it would be in clothing or anything because it was only on my legs. Like, basically just my calves and that was it. Yeah. So it could have been something on the hike. Yeah, well, that's why, that's what would make me think Poison Ivy because that's the only okay. way you could get it. It's right. Like, like, like you're, you know, from the knee down. Okay. But Tyler swears there's nothing like that in Switzerland. <laughs> but I also have yeah, I, I also have something on my legs that would make the difference. So I don't know. But after <laughs> after, after about five days, it went away. Yeah, it looks pretty gnarly. Like, in the pictures, you can hardly even see it's there. But, like, in person, I'm like, oh, yeah, you have something on your legs. But yeah, it went away. I'm still alive. I do always like the uh, the little, I don't know, they're kind of cheesy or it's overpriced stuff. But all the little, like, old books and artwork and stuff on all the all the little, oh, they're not even really shops, but just, they just line the, the... Like little street stands? Yeah, just and I have pictures yeah. of those, too. You'll kind of scroll by here, just kind of on the on the banks of the Seine. There's... Yeah, I scroll past, there's like a an older dude reading a newspaper in one. Yeah, and they're actually kind of... Yeah. I, I kind of took all these pictures stealth style because, like, I think it's, like, I don't know if it's like an IP thing. They actually don't want pictures taken of, like, their wares. Oh, here's my one. Tyler Tyler kind of made a point. He's like, hey, make sure you at least have one good meal in Paris. Because, you know, I'm trying to travel on the cheap. You're gone for a month. You're trying to not go broke. So I was eating a lot out of grocery stores. But, you know, Tyler did mention, you know, you know it's part of the trip. It needs to be one nice dinner in Paris. Okay. But, man, that's still, that's still tough, though, because, like, you're talking 50, 60 bucks for one meal if you're doing that, you know. Oh, yeah. Easily. Easy. easy. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of looking at that, looking at reviews, also trying to figure out where I'm staying and. Yeah, and honestly, you get to where your feet start hurting. Like, I started getting actually really big blisters and stuff because I've been walking so much and hiking so much that uh, I was starting to have to deal with blisters and, and things like that, which that, oh, that just kind of just puts a wrench in everything. So what I did find, yeah. I kind of, I went to a Lebanese restaurant. So you can kind of, if you get to where you see the, the pictures of food before we get to Versailles here, um, there's like some chicken and some, like a dessert thing. Yeah. yeah okay. So that, this is a Lebanese restaurant. And everyone's like, why would you go to a Lebanese restaurant in Paris? I'm like, Paris's whole thing is food from all over the world. Like, there's nothing, like, just because it's Lebanese doesn't mean it's not Paris. Like, anyway, yeah, that was my thinking anyway. So it was good. And again, it was about 30, 35 euro for a nice dinner at, at this place. The, the lemon chicken was actually amazing. The dessert is like a pistachio thing. That was great. Um, I didn't like, I didn't, actually, I don't even know what this is. It looks like uh, some sort of melon, that like that pinkish purplish stuff. Uh-huh. Disgusting. It looks, you know what it looks like? No. It looks like jicama. Okay, I don't know what that is. It, it, would that be Lebanese? But I don't know, I don't know, I have no idea. Oh, okay. Right? I don't know if it was fermented, like it almost tastes maybe it was maybe like, like a fermented melon or something. I've realized I hate fermented stuff. I hate sauerkraut, I hate kimchi, I just cannot handle fermented stuff. So it looks like, so, the, and it's pink. Yeah. Which, again, if it was, like, pickled or something would make sense because jicama is white, but it looks like... Or maybe it might just be a regular turnip because a jicama is just a Mexican turnip. Oh, huh. But that's what it looks like. It looks like a turnip. Okay. Like a, but if it's pickled or, yeah, or fermented, that would explain the pink color. Interesting. I hated it. But you don't like, you don't like like, funky fermented type type stuff? Yeah, like, so like once I... So I, we went to uh, Disney one year... And it, uh-huh. it, they had the uh, at Epcot they had like the food around the world thing, which is kind of neat. You just like have you pay two, three, four bucks at each little vendor to get a little sample of food from all over the world. And one of the ones yeah. that I kind of surprisingly liked because I, I usually don't like Southeast Asian food, but I was like had some South Korean barbecue, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And I'm like, oh, apparently I love South Korean barbecue. And then so then one year I was in Portland and went to like a South Korean place and it was like oh apparently everything here's fair game because i like south korean barbecue 
And you ate kimchi? I didn't know what kimchi was. So I get some sandwich <laughs> that says it has kimchi on it. And I'm just like, take a bite. And I'm just like, oh, what is this god awful stuff? And I'm like, oh, this is kimchi. Oh, kimchi is delicious. Kimchi is basically South Korean sauerkraut. And I hate sauerkraut. Yeah, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a semi-spicy fermented uh, pickled cabbage. Yeah, yeah. And, and I... Is- very delicious. Oh, not if you cannot stomach fermented stuff. Yeah. And I don't know why that is. I I, I can't explain it. Because kimchi and sauerkraut do not taste similar, but they are both fermented. No. Yes. So I had to scrape all that off, and I was like, okay, now i got to be more careful. And uh, anyway, <laughs> so I just, yeah, I just cannot tolerate fermented stuff. There used to be, I don't know if there, actually, I, I, think, it, I think this place closed. Actually, my dad would know. I should ask him. <laughs> But there used to be a Lebanese restaurant in Wichita. No, I, I like Mediterranean food. There, there's a there's a Mediterranean place. I don't know if it's Lebanese per se, but there's a Mediterranean place over by the East Mall. And, uh, you know, it's really good. I feel like I like something from everywhere. I just got to be careful about it. Yeah. But yeah, Mediterranean food is great. And Lebanese, you know, Lebanon's kind of right there on the, you know, it's over by Israel, right? So it's kind of that Eastern part yeah. of the Mediterranean. So, again, I do like that. And, again, this lemon chicken was amazing. And same thing with South Korean barbecue. Some of it's amazing. Some of it might have kimchi. So you just, I, I just got to be, <laughs> I just got to be careful when I travel. About, I mean, I'm willing to try new things. I just hate committing, you know, thirty bucks on a dish, and I don't like that dish, and I'm, and I won't eat it, and then all of a sudden I'm still hungry and <laughs> struggling. Yeah. I also tried. They had so like they had like the the, the the whatever that was, the jicama, whatever possibly, and then like the olives and, and the almonds. Almonds taste good, but I do think I'm like mildly allergic. I can get like hanker sores from almonds and stuff. And but I was like, okay, you know what? I'll try an olive again. It's been it forever since I've had an olive. Let me eat an olive. Oh my god, they are horrid too. Like I cannot. You don't like olives? Uh, no, and I don't. But I also think it's it's maybe even how they're aren't they like soaked in something too? Or are they pickled too? I don't know. But like, uh, yeah, they're kind of briny, especially like those green ones like that. Yeah, pit in like something. Yeah, something you would get at like a Mediterranean spot. It would be. A pit in olive yes. would be, yeah, packaged as some sort of, like, briny kind of oil. Disgusting. <laughs> I can't, I don't even, I, yeah. It is, it is a very, it is one of those things that, like, you either like or you don't. No, right. It's kind of, it's a very strong taste. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of my splurge meal of the trip. And, yeah, the chicken was good. The what dessert the, was good. What is the one, is that a dessert? What yeah, the, it's like a, uh, it's, with the pistachios. Yeah, so it's yeah, so it's pistachio on some kind of cream, and then like the little breads with it are also like little pistachio breads, like oh, it's yeah, almost, almost almost like cornbread but made from pistachio. Mm. So yeah, it was it was all it was all good and very also kind of unique. And then, I, honestly, yeah, one thing I love, and again, this is this is maybe even kind of a cliched comment, but American desserts are too dang sweet. Americans like things too sweet, and. Europe does that way better. Their desserts are just so much more subtle mm-hmm. and they're sweet without being overwhelmingly sweet. And so, yeah, yeah. European European desserts are way better. Have you um have you ever done like the any like Mexican desserts or Mexican candies that are like spicy? Uh they're sweet but they're spicy. I, not too much. Actually, the uh, I subbed for the Spanish teacher a, a month or two ago, and I, I was too scared to try them. But she had, she had brought some candy that the kids were like, "Oh, it's spicy. Oh, it's sweet." And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, having not grown up with it, it is a kind of an acquired taste thing. Okay, but it's it seems, at least to my knowledge, pretty unique to have like a dessert 
candy, you know, part of your cuisine also be spicy. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's not it's not very common. I mean, well, especially in the in the United States, but yeah, I just didn't know if you had ever like ventured into that territory if because if you if you don't like overly sweet desserts maybe oh yeah a sweet yeah. dessert that's also spicy you might actually like better than just straight up sweet i may be okay with that the one you always kind of get i always think of like it's not spicy but like the whole chicken waffles thing where all of a sudden you're like um apparently maple syrup on a chicken strip is actually good <laughs> like little things like uh, that yeah maple syrup yeah maple syrup and hot sauce oh okay so i haven't done that but i i can i can get i oh, can yeah. get behind that i think actually yeah which again makes sense you like you always have your sausage and bacon get syrup on them you don't care so yeah just bring on the yeah. chicken bring on the steak <laughs> someday whenever you come to phoenix we'll have to go to lolo's chicken and waffles okay downtown phoenix okay it's on and again ho- 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 <laughs> hey hopefully that'll be this june here yeah. So so right below that is then the the trip to uh, Versailles. Okay. And these are maybe a little out of order too here because like I think again cell phone versus so that's why the inside outside pictures kind of go back and forth. It's just kind of the clock differences on my phone versus my camera. Yeah. But the gardens are so so vast. I don't know if I have a picture of the map here, but it's just like the whole estate is just unreal. It looks like there's you have some pictures from up like on an elevated position where you can see kind of out into the landscape and it looks really huge. Yeah. So there's even, yeah, there's even like in the, in the distance, there's like a pond there. So like people can actually even park yeah. and go to just that part. So there's actually even a security checkpoint beyond that. So that's almost even like an open public park back with all that water. And then if you want to come to the Versailles gardens, you would have to pass a security checkpoint and have a ticket, but it's so vast. Like it's, it's almost like they have gardens on top of gardens on top of gardens or like, it's like, oh, here's one cool, elaborate design garden. And then over across the way is another one. So it's almost like a series of gardens. It's almost like a theme park of gardens. Like, it's it's huge. Like, and honestly, theme park might be the right size. Like, the Gardens of Versailles might be bigger than, say, Epcot at Disney. It's that vast huh. of, like, square footage-wise. And it's kind of hard to encapsulate that or encapsulate that without uh, looking at a map, I guess. But the short version is I was there for about five hours and felt like I was sprinting through both the palace and the gardens in five hours. And like that was like, yeah. I didn't quite get to everything and was going at a breakneck speed, and I was there five hours. Well, looking just, I mean, on a, just looking at the Google Maps for it. Right, how small the palace is compared to the gardens, and the palace is huge. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's like a few thousand feet from one end to the other. Like, it's probably... I don't know. It's kind of hard to measure with the little using the little. Oh right, because yeah, think measuring cause, thing. Yeah, because like yeah, because I got what three thousand feet is is over half a mile or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just yeah, it's hard to describe. If you see the map though, too, it has it's like all these little coves, and each cove is like its own different park, and there's all these statues, and it's just or you know carved things into these grottos, and just I don't know, like you, basically you want to spend all day in this one little park, but that one park is just one of dozens of parks yeah but i don't know just how different they all are too and each each little sub park had its or garden had its own little unique theme and stuff and it was kind of was kind of fascinating like i said i i guess guess my ultimate my recommendation would be budget more time for versailles like five hours how much time like a whole day basically basically plan on versailles needs to be a whole day yeah i mean i don't think you need a second day but like you want to get there as soon as you can and just plan on spending the whole day there. Like you yeah. need to eat there and just 
and I was maybe just uh, I'd probably didn't necessarily think about it being a whole day thing. Uh, not that I had anything else planned, but I'm also trying to get back to Paris before bus lines and things like that closed down. And I was also kind of I had so much stress getting there. I was always kind of worried about how I was going to get back. And I was probably almost the same night I was trying to go to the catacombs before I realized I couldn't too. So that's probably part of the reason I was trying to rush back. Yeah, so honestly, I, I didn't do a ton in Paris. I started going to Versailles. It was more just kind of walking around Paris because I, I don't think I, I didn't go to another museum in Paris. I just kind of was walking around Paris. I mean, which again is fine and it, it has its, its own charm. But was that by design or was it because everything was had restrictions? Kind of honestly, because of the restrictions. If I could have, I would have gone to the catacombs. I would have gone back to the Louvre, and those are kind of things I did have planned. And then yeah. when I wasn't able to do those, it was just kind of, oh, I guess I'm just going to walk around Paris. Yeah. Which, again, that's fine. It is it is Paris. And I was there for, I think it was three nights in that in that wooden box. But then I think, so far more interesting, and this is, so this is kind of even the bigger part I wanted to talk about, because I've been to Paris before, is then spending four nights in Normandy. I, I, and th- these were kind of like, you know, the bucket list things I wanted to go before. So my big one, I've been kind of... Yeah. Uh, keeping an eye on that I really wanted to go to that isn't on a lot of Americans' radar is uh, Rouen, uh, which is the city in Normandy where Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. Right. So if you scroll here through the pictures and we get now uh, underneath Paris, you see the, the I'm now inside a cathedral. Yes. You see the stained glass and all these statues. So this yep. this is the main cathedral in Rouen, uh, you know, the Gothic cathedral. Of course, what's also interesting is... you. you you would think that like all these old cities would have like the one big old Gothic cathedral, but like I swear, Rouen had three giant Gothic cathedrals, all about just like a half mile apart from each other. I'm like, who? <laughs> what? Why was this necessary? <laughs> I, I don't understand. But like, but this is the main one because this is this is the one with all the history. So this is the one where. Rollo is buried. So like this is where you get the, the tomb of Rollo. They have the shrine for Joan of Arc. She doesn't have a tomb because you know she was burned at the stake. Right. And then her her remains were then burned afterwards and yes, like burned yes. again and again until there was literally yes. nothing left. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we talked about that on uh history and so film a, there. I see the there's a big it looks like altar with a statue on it. Is that oh with okay, it looks like there's flames going up it. Is that Joan of Arc? With the underneath, it says Jesus and Maria, and there's a big sword. Yes, yeah, that's the statue of Joan of Arc. Yeah, he definitely has, uh, stone flames are kind of consuming her. So yes, she, she's definitely big in the history of Rouen. Whose sword is that? Oh, I don't. I mean, I I, I just think that's. Dec- I mean, just, I'm sure it's old, but I don't think that's an original sword or anything like that, right oh, there, where anybody okay. can grab. I yeah, that's, maybe that was there was a story behind that. No, uh, not 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 that I'm aware of, but and in the next picture, this. Like the stone guy laying down, is that that's Rolo's grave? Uh, no, so, so all these are in Latin, but you can kind of see. So that one, actually, it says on the at the end of the first oh, line, is that rec- Richard? Uh, so mostly, or no, sorry, or partially. So that is a tomb okay. for Richard the Lionheart. But I was like, wait a second, I didn't think he was here. So I Googled it. This is not his main tomb, but they do have his heart in storage in Rouen. Like, the Rouen Cathedral is in possession of, like, the mummified or embalmed heart of Richard the Lionheart. Okay. So they have a tomb here, and the heart isn't even in the tomb. So that's an empty tomb for Richard the Lionheart, because this church does have possession of his heart in, like, their archives or their storage, however they do that. That's kind of cool. Right. So 
And then the, the, the next one, and again, it says uh, the fourth word on the, oh. the first line. That's Rolo. Yeah. 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 Okay. Again, everything's in Latin here. So yes. Logan can read, but uh, he doesn't read <laughs> Latin. <laughs> Nor do I, but I can. you can always kind of point you in the right direction. So yeah, yeah. so Rolo. So this is where Rolo was buried. So obviously these cathedrals were built over the course of centuries and they always, they have additions and stuff, but yeah, like this is, I'm pretty sure this is the cathedral or the site of the cathedral an earlier version of this version of this cathedral was where like Rolo would have been baptized Christian was like this place. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, that was in Rouen. Right. Right. Yeah. That was kind of his center for power was, was, uh, was Rouen here. So, um, and then, so it also had, I don't know if I, I probably have pictures of them here too, or of course they're all kind of out of order because of the whole timestamp thing, but his son and grandson, I think are here, uh, as well. And then these, these weathered looking statues kind of in between those, those are actually from yeah. the front. If you look at the, and, and at some point here, there's like a, I have pictures of the front of the cathedral and you can see there's all these statues, but there's also some missing spots. So they got so weathered, they basically have taken them off the front and put them inside the church. Oh, okay. Because they're labeled too. Like there's one that says yeah, like, yeah. St. Matthew and then another one that's too small to read. But Right. So yeah, basically it's all, all these life-size statues of saints that are on the front of the church, but then some of them have been taken inside for just they've, they've, they're too damaged or whatever. Oh. Also here is our good friend, Empress Matilda. She is also buried in the Rouen Cathedral. Oh, yes. And that's the one I almost missed because there wasn't like a big plaque for it. It was like a tiny little plaque. And there's the thing that says it's faded and it's in Latin. But it is the plaque that says in Latin, you know, here lies mother, daughter, and wife of Henry. Because she had her dad was Henry, her son was Henry, and her husband was Henry. So right. there's that plaque that says "Rip" at the bottom. That is Matilda's plaque, but it's all in Latin, and it's it, one. It's not a very clear picture, and two, it's it's weathered. It looks like too to some extent. So she so she doesn't have a tomb per se. It's just that plaque on the wall, and I'm guessing she's probably buried behind it. Honestly, so she, it wasn't where she was originally interred. They moved her uh, later, so she was moved here after the fact. But, oh, really? I mean, not, I mean, like, a hundred years after the fact, not like, I mean, so she's still been there for and, hundreds of years. And why Rouen? Why is she buried there? Well, so her ancestral home was kind of Normandy with the whole William the Conqueror things, and that was kind of the lands that she right. she had, too. So even when, like, Stephen was king of England, and sorry for everyone who's not used to listening to history and film, we talk about all this stuff on our <laughs> history podcast. Usually don't go as in-depth over here. Yeah, so when when her dad died, she was over in Normandy. She was kind of like his, she was running things in Normandy while her father was king of England. Then her father dies and her cousin takes over the throne of England. She's still just in charge of Normandy. It's like, this is where she ruled. And then when her son ends up being king of England, she still just stays mostly over in Normandy. So Normandy was uh, her home for a lot of her life, especially her adult life. It was kind of like where she was in charge. So Normandy makes sense for for Matilda, even though she's an English princess. The Norman Normandy ties are not accidental and uh, very extensive. So I was hoping to see like the exact spot where, say, Joan of Arc was burned, but they don't have it marked just because they don't actually they don't know the exact exact spot. So right. there's a square and there's like a church by it where it's like this is the area. I mean, it's it's narrowed down to like a fifty by fifty yard square. Like she was right, burned yeah. in this square. But yeah. it's not so like when I visited the Tower of London in 2010, it's like, oh, no, 
here's the X where Anne Boleyn's head was cut off. Like, we know right. the exact yeah. spot for that. It, this wasn't yeah. that. It's more just like somewhere in this in this square. And I did really like Rouen. It was, of course, it was also raining off and on, like heavy rain. That's why I don't have actually a ton of pictures. These pictures that are outside are just taking in between downpours. Like it was. Oh, really? It was. Uh, I got soaked in in Rouen, but I also didn't have time to stay longer because I again I had a the hotel booked in Colin and I had to catch the train and all those kinds of things. So I gave myself about three, four hours in Rouen to walk around before catching the train. Yeah, beautiful architecture. What do they call that? They call that the, I think they half, they call it half timber where you kind of see the split wood and maybe even has, I don't know if it has metal, but just very distinctive old looking city uh-huh. in Normandy here, which when I get to Caen, it was way more modern. And I was just like, oh, wow. Con is just so so modern like this is a cool vibe for a european city i'm like why is it like this and then you start to realize like oh because most of it was destroyed during world war ii so everything's been yeah. built since world war ii i'm like oh yeah okay they probably wish they were not so modern but it does allow for honestly con was probably well copenhagen was awesome too but con and copenhagen were kind of like my favorite stops on this whole trip i was even telling some people like i i could live in con it was it was just a really and it's, it's a good size, you know, it's, you know, it's population about 100,000, very modern for a European city, but it also still has ruins of like, oh, I think it was the castle that William the Conqueror was living in as an adult, but right before he went on his conquest of England. Oh, cool. Caen is where that castle is. And, and Caen is actually where William the Conqueror is buried. But yeah, train to Caen. And then the next day I went to uh, Omaha Beach. Uh-huh. Again, I'm not a big World War II guy, but there's definitely a power like i i did start tearing up when i when i was standing on the beach you know where those allied soldiers landed 70 whatever years ago yeah there's there's a power to that and i i broke down even though again i'm not i mean i'm I'm, I'm a history guy not i'm not a big world war ii buff by any means but and then there's the the american cemetery here as well the crosses are and uh was kind of they had, they had, you see these like stone maps they kind of built they said that was actually even for not so much the history lesson it's for the family members of the fallen service members so you can see okay you know your person was in such and such platoon or such and such regiment here's the map right. of so here's where they were specifically and so that's what actually yeah. all those maps of the uh how the how the battles all played out it's all very detailed, mm-hmm. so you would know exactly where your family members were. And it's, it's, there's oh, there's like little things, like there was a wall of unnamed or, or missing soldiers. That's what it is, missing soldiers. So like basically the missing in action, but obviously presumed dead, were on like this big wall. And then some of them have like asterisks by them. Those are ones that were found. They remain, they're actually still to this day constantly finding remains of World War II soldiers in farms, farm fields and stuff. And then they're like, oh, yep, they got the dog tags, find them on the wall, notify their next of kin, and they put a little asterisk on the wall, they've been found. And so it was like dozens of these asterisks on this wall of missing soldiers that have actually been found in the decades since the war. Huh. And like, and still to this day, they're constantly still finding remains from soldiers from, from D-Day, which is just crazy to think about that, yeah, you're just plowing your field and you're like, oops, there's a skeleton of a World War II soldier I just found. Yeah. Yeah. So just kind of spent the day walking along the beaches there. And they have the bunkers and stuff that you can you can go in those. Yeah. Like there's again, I think there's, they can only 
do so much. Yeah, so some of that stuff is still there. Yeah, old bunkers. I think so. Those are actually German, obviously. Then right, because the U.S. or the yeah. Allies didn't spend time with the bunkers. Right. Yeah. So just just kind of a nice place to just reflect on the immensities of a conflict of that size. Yeah. Yeah. Just I mean, it's it's a you know the good firm sand, all the kind of smooth rocks. And you just kind of yeah, I don't know. It was, it was uh, serene. It was it was, it was this, yeah, it was very serene and just kind of a meditative place to be. Yeah, I really don't have much more to I guess to say to you about that. So yeah. Then I get back and go shopping. Colin is where I was first trying to deal with my cell phone thing, where I talked to the guy in, uh, had to use my best best attempts at French to try to get my SIM card updated because he didn't speak any English. And that I that was at the mall and, and Colin kind of dealing with all that. And um, and then this castle is the William the Conqueror Castle, um, which still had some people doing some archaeological stuff there. And I actually didn't realize, I took three day trips out of Colin. So that's why I stayed four nights there. First one was Normandy. And then next I went to Falaise, which is a town of about 8,000, which was like a 30-minute bus ride from Caen. But it's where William the Conqueror was born. So Falaise was kind of my pilgrimage for William the Conqueror. Uh, so he's, you know, he's called William the Bastard basically because his dad was like, you know, whatever lord or duke of Normandy and had a kid with just whatever farmer's daughter kind of nearby or whatever. And there's even like a little, uh-huh. there's even like a little well and they call it, oh, I forget the name of his mom, but it's, you know, it's called like, let's see if I can find it real quick. Oh, there it is. Arlette's Fountain. So basically it was like, supposedly like, this is like the fountain where William the Conqueror's dad found this beautiful young girl and, and ends up, you know, having a, having a kid with her. And that kid is William the Bastard. This is also one of the coolest museums, honestly, of the whole trip in this in this little town. And of course, I mean that castle just on the hill looks pretty darn intimidating. But it, it was the museum that had these little running videos where it would have like a a picture from what I realized after the fact were from the the Bayou Tapestry, which I even had a train connection in Bayou Bayou and didn't think to stop. There's like this thousand year old tapestry that basically tells the story right. of William the Conqueror, and you'll see a lot of pictures yeah. online if it's doing a like you have this old school sketch of William the Conqueror. Or his dad, or his his kids, or his wife, or whatever. A lot of those are just straight up from the Bayou Tapestry. Anyway, so, so the museum would have this picture from the Bayou Tapestry, and then it would transition into a video monologue of someone dressed as that historical figure. And so, yeah, so yeah, this picture of when the Conqueror goes into a guy talking as if he's William the Conqueror for like four minutes, and it fades back into the static image. And they had these all throughout for like, you know, eight different oh, historical cool. figures. And like, this is so freaking cool. And like different, you yeah. know, of course, this is all in the castle, different rooms in the castle. And now same with these two, because this was France. This is another one. I wasn't for sure I was going to be able to get into the castle because the tourist office is like, oh, yeah, I think you need the digital thing. I was like, well, all like, uh, I'm yeah. American. All I got is this thing. And she's like, well, I'll try it and they'll, they'll let you know. And so, yeah, fortunately, they did. They did accept the paper card and I was able to get get inside this castle since it was like one of my favorite museums of the whole trip and then there's uh the statue in again i love the the william conqueror stuff uh if you scroll down you can actually see some of those pictures and videos i took there's the big statue basically after the museum and castle stuff when i'm back in fillets itself there's this uh-huh. iconic statue and i love this because i re- i've researched so much of this so much of this stuff on wikipedia i've seen this statue so many times on wikipedia and seeing it in person was actually really really cool. The one where he's on the horse. Yes, he's on the yeah, horse. The horse is reared back. Sweet. Yes, he's got yeah. his arm up in the air with like his banner, and then the six statues down along the bottom 
are the uh-huh. six preceding Dukes of Normandy before William the Conqueror. Okay. So it's like, so it's like, it's in order, his dad, his grandpa, his great grandpa, going back to Rollo, because he's basically like the sixth generation from Lo- Rollo. Yeah, it's, you know, Rollo was the first Duke of Normandy, and so it's the six preceding Dukes of Normandy with William the Conqueror on top. You basically go to the Wikipedia page for any of those seven men, and you'll see that statue. And I was just, and I, I had gone to Google Earth and everything before, so I, I had researched this place so much. It was just really freaking cool. To be in yeah. fillets, which how many Americans have even heard of fillets? I mean, I hadn't heard of fillets until I was like researching, like, where's that statue or where was William the Conqueror yeah. born? I was like, okay, fillets. I'm like, okay, so I'm plotting ahead of time what the bus line is I need to take to get from con to fillets, and didn't want to even book the con trip until I knew I was going to be able to take the bus to fillets. And just anyway, so that was one of the highlights for me was going to fillets of all places. Um, and if you see the one sign that says, uh, uh, fillets et son pays, uh, de Normandie. That just means, uh, basically, fillets in its countryside or fillets in its area, fillets in its country, heart of Normandy. Nice. And then even like all the little nicknames in French on the statue, you know, it's, I don't know, it's, it's cool because it, they, you know, it's all, all his ancestors had names. You know, there was like William Longsword, R- Robert the Fearless, and all those kinds of things all leading up to William the Conqueror. Anyway, I dug it so much. <laughs> And then, and then the next day trip, the third and final day trip out of Caen, um, this will kind of probably wrap up even this episode, is, it was Mont Saint-Michel, which is just so iconic. It's that, you're familiar with it, I, I think, right? At least what Mont Saint-Michel is. It's, it's kind of the island cathedral off the, off the coast of Normandy. And so it's just, yeah. it's just yeah, yeah. so iconic when you kind of see it there from the distance. In a weird way, though, and I hate to say it wasn't worth it because it was totally worth it, but... The coolest part about visiting Mont Saint Michel is just seeing it on the horizon as you're approaching it. Yeah, seeing it from far away. Yeah. Right, and being in it and walking the streets of it is less than the coolness of approaching it. If that makes sense, I don't. I don't know how to explain that. Like, okay, approaching it is cooler than being in it. I mean, I can see that because when you're in it, it's like it's so big. Like you're sitting on it, it's so big. It's right, like, that's true. Okay, like I'm here, but I can't really see anything. But when you see it from far away, you can see it like. You know, you can see all of it at once. Right. It, it's a perspective. And it does look yeah. cool because it's like in the middle of water. Right, right. It has, it's on these yeah. marshlands. And, 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 of course, I just love how they do that. How they, you know, again, it's, you know, it's a thousand-year-old cathedral. And, of course, they just have these. It's just a rock that was already there. And then they use that rock to build this cathedral and village on because it's eas- an easily fortifiable position and then just becomes strategically important over the years. And then, yeah, so I and I did go in the in the cathedral and walk in the streets and it's got all these shops. Of course it's also crazy crowded. Tons of pictures of seagulls and everything. They're kind of flocking around. And again, there's kind of this cool marshland and I didn't want to go barefoot. There was definitely but there was people like that would take their shoes off and were walking barefoot in like the marshes around it. And the architecture is very similar to what I saw in Rouen with the with the way those buildings look. And no, it's de- definitely a cool place. But I think, you know, the one days was was enough there. Yeah, it, it definitely kind of a super popular tourist site. So I think it's it might even be like seriously second to like the Eiffel Tower and the Louvre I guess that'd be third but like it's it's up there with like the Eiffel Tower and the Louvre as far as like most visited places in France yeah and I don't remember much about like the history of it itself because like I'm more in like the kings and queens stuff so like it wasn't like kings lived here and stuff but it's just kind of important for like the the church and the cathedral itself and just and just the how old it is oh this is what I, I did lose I did accidentally like litter i took a i had all these carabiners that i was using to like clip things to my bags and adjust things and keep things closed and i uh-huh. was fiddling with one off my camera bag 
and like and I dropped it in 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 Mont Saint Michel, but like to a place I couldn't access anymore. So like, well, I'm like, well, I guess I mean yeah, it's cheap. It doesn't matter, but like it's technically kind of literacy. Feel bad about that too, but I'm like, oh well. <laughs> so I lost a little carabiner clip in uh, in Mont Saint Michel that I guess some workers will find at some point. Another thing I almost missed. If you see that one street side, it says. Uh, Rue Guillaume le Conquerant. That just means William the Conqueror Road. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I didn't realize until I was about to leave that, oh, he's buried here. So like I ran to the Con Cathedral, and that's where you've got the, the big signs of me with this is Con Normandy. Yeah. So that's outside the cathedral where William the Conqueror is buried. And I basically was trying to catch a bus oh, back to Paris. So you you had planned to go see like the castle where he lived and see like the statue with him and his ancestors and stuff, but you didn't know that he was buried there. Right. So, so yeah, so much of this oh. stuff was even just kind of like lucky accident. So I picked Khan because honestly, because of its location and it, it's, yeah, basically it was close to Falaise. It was close to Mont Michel. It was close to Utah or uh, Omaha beach, Utah beach, all those. It was close to Rouen. It was kind of just a good central location. It was almost then just luck. Like I didn't know the castle he lived in was even there. I just knew it was a city that was close to these other things. I didn't realize it itself had one of his castles and his actual burial place. So I was basically about to leave and almost missed. Now, it's been damaged, so like it's pretty small. I think they even lost part of him. So this is the tomb of William the Conqueror. It's not that old though. So he's been he's been moved. The cathedral's been damaged before, so Oh, there you go. In 1742, they allowed the tomb to be demolished and the grave was moved to its current location. So it's been there for over 200 years, almost 300 years, but not the nearly 1,000 years that he's been dead. So that's not his original tomb. That's just his tomb for the last couple hundred years, which is still crazy. Oh, but okay. Yeah. That definitely happens happens a lot. And then just the other thing, too, because, like, like, again, I'm getting ready to leave France here. The whole, again, it's it's cliched, but the the boulangeries, the, you know, the French bakeries, Man, as freaking advertised, you can just go into any, <laughs> just go into any of those and like talk about the best place to grab lunch. Just getting like pastries and sandwiches from these these bakeries is just like I don't know. It's almost like the equivalent, like the U.S. equivalent, is getting like the crappy stuff or the warming tray at like you know the quick trips kind of stuff. Right. They have that kind of thing in Paris, but it's all like some of the best food you've ever had. <laughs> like, well, it's like uh, you know, it's like when you go to. Like if you go to New York City, okay, you yeah, like, yeah, you know, a, like a two dollar slice of pizza. Yeah, okay, and like, yeah, that's something that's fast and easy, but it's also like the best pizza in the world. Okay, that's maybe a good comp. And then yeah, you're getting just these pastries in that same kind of way, and you're just like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me with this? Yeah, yeah. and so yeah, even though it's just like a stop off thing that you get in like just a couple minutes. Right, right, or it's all kind of yeah. So it's it's all good there. So yeah, then I went back to Paris, dealt with my cell phone thing, and then. Was again just a little stressed making everything work. I had so my next stop was Copenhagen, and I was flying from Paris to Copenhagen uh, with like an overnight connection through Warsaw. But we'll uh, we'll get to that in part four of this trip, which will be uh, <laughs> Copenhagen and Denmark. And uh, with a little bit of time we have here, we can kind of briefly discuss anything different with uh, movies, TV, and exercise. No, nothing really has changed with uh, my workout routine. I've been. I've been uh, running a little more again because I have that real good group of girls running year round. I've been kind of increasing my mileage as they do. My biggest thing is going to be can I keep running during track because I won't be able to run with them during track season. Uh As the head coach, I just have to stay on campus and deal with sprinters and stuff like that. 
And so I don't ever get to go run with the distance runners. Does that affect how much you enjoy coaching track versus coaching cross country? Because during cross country, you can run with the team and during track, you're stuck in more of an administrative role. Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know. They're, they are very different because of that. Cross country is almost a much more relaxed thing. And so <laughs> it's going to be the whole children thing. It's like, I love them each differently, Logan, <laughs> but the same. Well, just because like your responsibilities during track season, it's like, you know, you're having to, I mean, you have to like put people in events and like decide which people are going to which meet and what events they're going to do there. Whereas in cross country, it's like, every you just run like everyone just runs and so we're just gonna go and we're gonna run and that's like that's all you do here's how i'll summarize it cross country is way more relaxed and casual and laid back Uh which makes it sound preferable but track is more challenging and demanding in a i want to rise to the challenge kind of way so like right i i like the challenge of right track. it's not a hassle it's just more challenging yeah so it's right. less relaxed it is more stressful it's way way more work coaching track especially again as it'd be different if i was you know just in part of it. being a head track coach is infinitely yeah. more work than being a head cross country coach um, and i even compare being a head cross country coach to being a track assistant coach but i i, I like it in a different way but yes yeah, so conditioning wise if i'm going to want to stay in shape to because i you know i haven't ran a race since 2016 but I, I was thinking maybe next winter after cross country season this fall i could go try to run like a half marathon in a different city but i kind of want to continue my training now through track season so then i can hit summer in a better place and then cross country way finds track season is the hardest time for me to work out ironically because there's just not time but like today i did run seven miles uh with my top girl so anyway i'm, I'm getting some running in lifting i'm just trying to make sure I lift a little bit. And one I don't know if I've talked about, one specific lift I wanted to mention because it's my favorite lift I've decided. And it was even probably, okay. my, it was even probably my favorite lift when you were in high school though too. Oh, okay. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear what this is. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, now, and people do different versions of this, so they might not be thinking of the exact thing that I'm going to say, but uh, skull okay. crushers, skull crushers. Okay. With the, uh, with the easy bar. And some people will do a yeah. straight up tricep extension while they're laying down towards their skull. I call that the skull crusher. Right. And I'm not against that by any means, but I find that that's a lot harder on the elbows. Yes. So what I prefer, again, I love using, using the easy bar. So what I prefer, uh-huh. and again, I, I got this from our weight trainer in college. You kind of start at your chest and keep the bar kind of as close to you as possible while going behind your head. Yep. basically parallel with the bench and then back to your chest. And so it's kind of going back and forth from your chest to behind your head while laying down with the easy bar. And then I alternate that with pressing it. But then because you have that close grip, it's a close grip. So it's primarily a tricep workout. Okay. But when you stretch back like that, though, you get so much shoulder and core activation. So I, yeah. in my mind, it's a total upper body, all-in-one lift, primarily triceps, but lots of shoulder, core's activated. I, I don't know why, but even since, even since college, it's always kind of been my favorite lift. I just feel like it's a big, one of the biggest bangs for your buck in the weight room huh. is doing the skull crushers that way. That's surprising. I, I would have thought that your favorite lift would have been like, I don't know, like you're a runner. So I would have thought it'd been like an egg, a leg exercise, oh. like a squat or something. No, I, I, and I feel like I've talked about this before on here. I'm notoriously trash on lifting with my legs. Now, part of that now is my knees are so shot. Like, my thigh muscles are strong enough to certain things that my knees can't handle the load. 
Oh, and I, but I also okay. never. So I have always benched more than I can squat. And you're a competitive runner too. That's really surprising. Well, that, but that's endurance versus. Well, that's yeah, that's that's. And, and it sounds weird. Are my legs stronger than my arms? Of course they are, but my knees don't allow for me to put on a heavy load onto okay. the the bar and be able to actually successfully go down or then my back and stuff. So, and I just don't have a lot of experience doing it. I've been bench pressing since I was 14. I've only dabbled in lifting legs post collegiately a little bit here and there. So I've just, I've also just yeah. never put in the work to lift my legs. So I kind of run and lift yeah. upper body and I've never really lifted legs enough. And again, I, I don't recommend it. I think a lot of the knee issues I have are because I was never lifting legs when I first got into running and I should have been lifting to kind of help strengthen some of those joints and, and just kind of keep some of those repetitive stress injuries from happening. Or the fact that I'm so quad dominant and my glutes and hamstrings basically don't even know how to activate all that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying I recommend it. It's just kind of a sad, embarrassing fact that I bench more than I can squat, (laughs) which is, I know, I know it's bizarre. It's bizarre as it sounds, but it's more of a neuromuscular thing too, that I just, anyway, it's all those things. It's, It's not great. Anything new for you workout wise? I didn't prepare anything for the the workout portion of the podcast, but uh, since you brought up your favorite lift, oh okay, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll just sit here for a couple seconds and try try and think of my favorite lift. Okay, man, this is such a tough question because it's like there's so many different ways you can come at it. Like my favorite lift to do is probably different than what I think is like my favorite lift as far as like the most bang for your buck that you get out of one exercise. Gotcha. So like my favorite lift to do, I think pull-ups probably it would be my favorite lift to, I'm a to, big, to do. I'm a big pull-up fan because they're so quick. Just, just run in there, rattle off some pull-ups, hop down. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like doing pull-ups and because there's so many different variations to do. Yeah. And you know, you can do them reverse grip, you can do them overhand, you can do them narrow, you can do them wide. And like, man, there's something to be said for like going in and like saying, okay, I'm going to do like, I'm lifting, doing back day today and just only do pull-ups. Like just do like 150 pull-ups. Oh, huh. Just whatever variations you want. And like, you'll get such a nasty back pump from that. But I think my favorite, I, I don't think I would say that that's my favorite lift as far as like bang for your buck from one exercise it's pretty good though and it, it gets you a lot it, it's, it is yeah it is but my my issue with it is that it's an upper body exercise right and i think that for the most bang for your buck exercise i i think it's the um, uh trap bar deadlift oh really okay okay so is that the, is that the hex one meaning like you're literally standing inside yeah. of it so it's like you're trapped yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. right and the reason that I would pick that over a regular deadlift is because it's more a regular deadlift is more like posterior chain focus. So like, you know, hammies, right. glutes, and lower back. Where with a hex bar, you're still getting, you know, those muscles are still working, but it's more of a it's more your pattern of movement is more similar to a squat right. than to a regular deadlift. Okay. And there's a lot less that you have to think about form wise and technique wise because it's like you know with the deadlift it's like oh well you know is the bar getting out in front of you is it too close to you where's your stance you know what what, you know what's your your back doing versus whereas with a trap bar deadlift you just stand in it wherever your feet feel comfortable you reach down you grab the handles and you stand up yeah like it's very simple you can do a ton of weight yeah and most trainers will tell you like deadlift is like one of the most essential lifts to, to do because of my lack of background lifting legs, 
I, I, you mentioned posterior chain. That's basically what I had is have severe, a severe deficiency and I can't get it to fire right. And I actually like threw out my back doing trap bar deadlift one time. And, uh, no, but really. it, it, I admit that it's, it's all my issue. Deadlift is a great lift. I, it's not safe for me to do it without having probably a trainer walk me through the, the makeup work I would have to do for years of deficiencies. Yeah. And what's funny. So, so my knees don't let me like back squat and, uh, and my muscle firing posterior chain issues doesn't let me deadlift. But what I do like, I will do RDL. Uh, I do, I'm a big fan of RDL. And actually what I really like to do for just honestly, just for the balance, single leg RDL. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So I do a lot of that. RDLs are great too, because it's a, uh, it's a top down exercise. So like a lot of the time, if you're injuring yourself on a, on like a regular deadlift or something, it's because you're starting in the bottom. Right. Right. And so like that, you know, you're generating a lot of force. You have to be, you know, you have to, there's a, a proper technique that you have to do you know, in order to stand that weight up without hurting yourself. Right. Whereas with an RDL, you're starting at the top and you slowly, you know, you can slowly go down in a controlled way to a depth that is comfortable for you and then just go back up. And so starting from the top right. down is is a lot more, it's a lot less likely to injure you than, you know, putting a bunch of weight on a bar and standing up a deadlift from the bottom right and i do gotta be careful about the weight i put on it i can definitely tell my lower back is uh not too excited but again it's it's all i've i've kind of just i don't know so many years of doing things slightly wrong that if you even though if i know the correct way to do things now i'm still at risk of injury because my muscle firing patterns are just kind of distance running is not very compatible with uh, heavy weightlifting. <laughs> Let's just say, yeah. Not that you, not that you can't do both. Oh, the pull-up thing did make me think too. So I, again, I think I'm, I've mentioned before the pandemic, especially. I've been doing lots and lots of pull-ups. What I'm trying to get to where I can do is, I want to be able to do a clean muscle up. So like, uh-huh. as in both sides together. I, I, I can do the, you know, the. I usually don't try because it, it just kind of hurt my shoulder or my elbow. But I can do the kind of like where you pull up. And then, like, get one side, we get the elbow up, and then oh, the other chicken side, wing it. chicken wing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that that kind of hurts. That can hurt your kind of your shoulder as you transition to that. Yeah, you can you can really mess up your shoulder doing that. Right. So I want to be able to do it clean, but the transition is tough. Like I can get, I can fire up, and I can get a pull up basically to where I'm all the way up to like my sternum, and I can pull up yeah. to where like my hand, my sternum is by, but I but then transitioning from there with my hands by my sternum. Problem is gravity fights you, <laughs> and I can't transition yep. that into like the press down that it becomes. Uh, and I, I, I think I feel like I'm close. Like I, I can do pull ups, like I'm shooting myself through the ceiling, but I can't quite cleanly transition it into the uh, the full both arms at the same time muscle up. Which again, I don't know if everybody listening knows exactly what we're talking about, but basically, basically just yeah, you're doing a pull up to where you end up with your hands by your waist. Yeah, and, and arms fully extended in front of you, hands at your waist. And uh, it just, yeah, it's, it's a really explosive lift, but I, I can't get that over that little hump in the middle there. Ow. <laughs> Editor Rich jumping in here real quick. Yeah, I'm not even close to being able to do that. I went up again and tried after recording this conversation, and I am nowhere close and don't think it's actually possible. For me, that is. I've seen it done. But hey, glad I was optimistic at one point. Ow. <laughs> anyway. What if that's uh yeah finish up here with uh our movie and TV segment as you're saying so what have you been watching recently so this is like a category of movies and TV okay that I've been really really liking lately 
and these are all so I, I I picked three specific examples that are all very different, but they're similar in this one specific way. And that specific way is that they are all period pieces okay. that take place in the late 80s and early 90s. Okay. I've been, I just, I don't know if it's like a nostalgia thing, but it's not really nostalgia because I was born in 1993. So like, it's, I don't know. It's just. I, it, no, that, that's like Midnight in Paris though. You can have nostalgia about a time that predates you. I th- I feel yeah, like. Yeah, it's just a, and I don't know if it's like a, you know, like the aesthetic or just like seeing just slightly old stuff yeah that i just find really fascinating so i'll 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 go through these examples and uh we can kind of talk about them none of these well two of them are tv shows so they wouldn't have been in the top 10 uh anyway the other one is a movie actually we'll start with that one so the movie that i watched recently that falls in this time period is a movie called censor it's a horror movie from the uk it came out last year in 2021 but it is about a film censor so apparently and this is maybe a a something we actually maybe could do a bonus episode on this for history and film because there is a lot of interesting history stuff connected to like censoring movies in the uk in the 80s okay it's a part of this controversy called the video nasty controversy where they had basically in order to get certain ratings or like to allow these movies to be shown to the public, there were people that had to watch like horror movies or movies with sexually explicit content and go through and like say, all right, if you want this rating, like this scene needs to be cut, this scene needs to be cut, you can't show this, you can't show this. And so this in the movie, this the girl, the main character, is one of those people who's censoring movies. And she gets this horror movie where this girl's getting brutally murdered. And she's like, that looks like my sister that went missing when I was a little kid. Oh, like this isn't a movie. This is her actual murder. Well, potentially you got to watch the movie to find out. That's the story. That's that's the story. Yeah, I got you. So she thinks that that, that this person in this horror movie is actually her missing sister. And it's. It's a really good psychological thriller. It didn't break my top 10. That's why, I'm, that's why I can talk about it now. But it is okay. a really good okay. psychological kind of horror thriller movie. They do some really cool stuff where they, they change like the aspect ratio to make it look like it's an old VHS tape at certain parts of the movie. But it was really fun. And it, it takes place in like the mid 80s. I think 19 uh, video nasty was in the was in the early to mid 1980s. So I think it's like takes place in. Oh, 1985. Huh. But yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, the the costumes and the the style of movie that she's watching, it, it made me nostalgic for a time when I wasn't even alive. <sighs> the second thing that I watched is from this kind of time period is the uh, Apple TV series for All Mankind. Have you watched that? No. So it's basically an alternate history timeline where the Soviets beat America to the moon. And that results in a long, drawn-out, protracted space race that lasts all the way through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And, like, by the end of season two, it's, like, in the 90s. And there's still this, like, space race to, like, gain domination of the moon. Oh, huh. But it's, like, a, it's interesting to see, like, the stuff that they change and the stuff that they don't. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to give specific examples because a lot of it is, like, spoilery. But, I don't know. It's fun. It's a cool show. If you have Apple TV, I'd highly recommend it. I got Apple TV to watch 
Macbeth. So when we did the Macbeth oh. episode, I saw it. I was like, oh, that looks pretty cool. Check that out. And uh, man, That's I'm really funny. glad I did. My wife and I binged it in like three days, both seasons. Oh, wow. I, I got Apple TV recently to watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> so Oh, okay. And then uh, the other one I was watching, I forget if I mentioned, I don't think I mentioned this last time, the Donald Glover series Atlanta. I've heard good things. I just have never, I've never seen it. I, I yeah. like Donald Glover. He's great. And the Keith Stanfield's in that. He's great. Yes, yes. So where it's interesting, I, I, where I really like Atlanta is I don't know what to compare it to. Okay. So it's like, you know, 25 minute episodes. Basically, it's like, what if The Wire was a comedy, but not a farce? There's no, la- like, it's it's almost like, but like a little bit of The Office with it. Like, it's, it's so subtle. Is it like Four Lions kind of? Like dark comedy? But it's, yeah, it's like dark, maybe, but like, you almost like, it's a comedy that feels like a drama. The rhythm and the vibe is all dramatic. Okay. But then like, you're like, this is awkward. (laughs) Oh, it's supposed to be funny. I don't know. Like, I can't explain it. Like, it's definitely a comedy, but it's not like any comedy I've ever seen because it's not a laugh out loud comedy. It's not a farce. It's not satire. It's just the funny, awkward things that come up, but without being a British awkward kind of vibe to it. So it's kind of unique, okay. which I think is why it does it does stand out as not really anything. So again, I would say if The Wire were a comedy, but not in a farce way, in a instead of getting into murders, they just get into awkward situations. Okay, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and Donald Glover is great in it it's and he is he involved in the creation of the show i mean i know he's in the show but no yes i i think he's the creator okay yeah, yeah. and it's just it's just him and his buddies hanging out in atlantis like there's no overall arching thing i mean, I guess the overall arching plot is his cousin has a hit rap single and then so they're kind of just managing the world of like a low-level viral rap star in atlanta and they're just kind of man- managing his stuff, but like that's also still mostly just in the background. You're just dealing with their lives, and yeah, like Stanfield's kind of this quirky character, but again, in a subtle way. Everything's super, super, super subtle, and I kind of dig it. Yeah, it's it's just very unique, and it's on it's on Hulu, uh, so okay. I do I do recommend it. And uh, yeah, I'm just trying to catch up with all the. Oscar movies here before we try to here in about a month record our best of 2021 movies i'm kind of at a good spot where if my list didn't change i could live with it but there's still so many more movies i would like to watch but then at the same time i'm like man i don't want those movies to displace movies i already have in my top 10 necessarily yeah i'm gonna be interesting to see how different our lists are because i don't i don't think i have very many movies that i would say are like oscar movies on there no and i always feel bad because like i feel i always feel like my top 10 trends too heavily with the oscar stuff but it's also because i agree with not always obviously there's definitely issues i have always but usually if you look at the say the 10 oscar, 10 oscar nominations this year i'm willing to bet five of them will be in my top 10 just because yeah i agree yeah those are five of the best movies this year yeah but i also always try to balance that with you know a mix of independent movies or different kind of stuff but we'll see we'll see like i said here in here in a little bit i'm gonna go try to catch parallel mothers see if it makes makes the cut maybe it will maybe it won't 
And then, like you said, what was the one you just said? Was uh, oh if, yeah, if a hero is actually available to watch, I'll probably try to watch that in the next couple of days as well. Yeah. But again, with the with those uh, Al Motivar and Farhadi films, though, I just feel like they're always good. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're one of my favorites of the. You know what I'm saying? Right. They've never they've never made my favorite movie of the year, or I don't think any of them's even made my top five before. Maybe Farhadi has. Did but about, like, I was gonna say, did About Ellie make your top ten the year that it came out? Or did I you not watch it until, until years six years, after years later? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it could retroactively make my top ten. You're yeah. right there, but you're right. I rarely get to see his movies in time. I, I have had a couple of Farhadi movies in my top ten before, but never something super high in contention. I mean, I about Ellie is the only Farhadi movie that I've seen, and like that alone makes me oh, want okay. to go watch a hero because yeah, yeah. about Ellie was that good. Oh yeah. He makes some of the best character films in the world right now. Like, as far as just, like, small human dramas, Yeah, Farhadi might be the best in the world at that right now. Like, yeah. they're that good. They're, but, they're, again, they're, they're just not big pictures. He's not Christopher Nolan. He's not trying to be. He just makes right. these small character stories, yeah. but as good or as better than anybody in the world right now. So, <laughs> big Farhadi fans. That's probably a good place to wrap this up. So, yeah, thanks for listening, and I'd say next time we'll get into part four of my Europe trip, but I'm guessing we won't get around to that until after, after the top we talk list. about our, best, our, 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 yeah, our favorite movies of the year. So, yeah, thanks for listening, and catch you later. Bye.